We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. Uh, please turn to Nehemiah 1, chapters or chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Good morning. We are uh, in Nehemiah this morning, and I'm really excited to begin this new sermon series with you. Uh, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet. If you're, if you're visiting um, and you haven't yet, please, after the service, avail yourself to the, to the welcome table that we have set out. Uh, there you can get some more information about the church and also get a free coffee mug. So we would like to give that to you if you're visiting uh, with us this morning. Uh, I have a lot to do, but before we jump into the text today, I want to talk uh, just very briefly and remind you all that February is Volunteer Appreciation Month. So October typically is, is, um, is Pastor Appreciation Month, but we wanted to have a, a, volunteer, a Volunteer Appreciation Month here at Emmaus as well. And so um, February is that month for us, and we have, if you've been following us on social media, every day we try to 
to uh, uh, post a little blurb on individual people and couples who have, who have served here at Emmaus. Um, but we also want to take some time before the service every Sunday to pray for and recognize specific, specific groups of volunteers. And so this morning, I want to recognize and thank and pray for our community group leaders and hosts. So if you are a community group leader slash host or host, please stand up so we can recognize you. And we just want to thank you. We want to thank you guys. All right. You guys can have a seat. It is uh, no exaggeration to say that we could not function as a church the way that we feel called to by God without you all. Um, the, the community groups is, is where we as a church try to facilitate all of the New Testament's one another's. Love one another, exhort one another, rebuke one another, bear with one another's burdens, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, we, we, we try to funnel those, we try to uh, foster and facilitate living out the one another's through community groups primarily. And so um, there, it's, it's not a coincidence that we happen to do these in members' homes, right? Uh, even if we had a building and we had access to classrooms and things like that, we probably would not, it, it would have to take a, a massive work of God for us to change from the model of meeting with community groups and homes to like a Sunday school or something like that. And the reason is because there is something truly significant about the intimacy of families opening up their homes to church members. I mean, that, that, there is so much intimacy there, right? Like this is, this is a person's home. This is where they feed their children. This is where you come home at the end of the day after a work day and relax and unwind. And for families to open up their homes for us to meet together and for, for godly men to, to uh, be appointed to lead those community groups and facilitate those one another's and, and spur one another on towards uh, deeper uh, assimilation of the gospel, um, it's, a, it's a huge sacrifice and a huge work. And so, um, so hear, hear me say this as, as a, uh, on behalf of the rest of the pastors, community group leaders and hosts, we are incredibly grateful for you. So we want to pray for you this morning and a few other things as well. And then we'll jump into our text in Nehemiah. Sound good? All right. Well, would you join me in prayer? O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, we are needy as we come to your word this morning. We pray to you, Lord God, because we believe help our unbelief, that you are the personal, triune God who is sovereign over all, who is good, who listens to the prayers of his people. And like Nehemiah, we pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters this morning. We pray on behalf of our community group leaders and hosts. Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for what they allow us to do as a church. I pray for the men and women who are involved with leading and hosting community groups would you give them endurance and give them a heavenly mindset for what they are doing, that the bonds of love that are being tied in their homes and in their groups are bonds that last for an eternity. Let us not take that for granted. And I pray for the individual community groups represented in this room today. Lord, would you, would you help them? Would you bind their hearts together in love? so that they feel for one another and actually live life together. We also lift up to you now, Glenn and Carrie Higgins and the saints at City Center Baptist Church in Seattle. Lord, we ask that you give them strength to endure in the labor to which you have called them. And please, God, grant them the grace of growing in the knowledge of Jesus, even this morning as they gather in Seattle to worship. Lord, may, may their church be strengthened and may they enjoy the thrill of seeing you transfer those from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And now, Lord, we come to your word and we ask for your help. We need you. We need your help to see Jesus. And we need your help to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. So fill us with your spirit and teach us how to pray 
through the ministry of your servant, Nehemiah. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to be in the next 14 or 15 weeks in the book of Nehemiah. And we're spending the next 14 weeks in the book of Nehemiah for one very simple reason. We're spending the next 14 weeks in Nehemiah because we are not content with a Christianity that is characterized by minimal devotion to God. We do not want to just get by in the Christian life. We are not content with a numb, mechanical, affectionless Christianity where the reality of God and our relationship with Him is something that is taken for granted, is ordinary, where we can talk about God through yawns. We don't want that. We are not content with being bored Christians who are indifferent about sin and righteousness. And we're also not content with a Christianity that is ignorable by those around us. We want for people to be so provoked by our gospel-saturated lives that they cannot ignore the Jesus that we worship. We want for our city to be so struck by the devotion of the Christians within that they have to consider the claims of the Jesus we worship. And we want for the Spirit, through such consideration, to work that droves upon droves come to saving faith in Christ. In other words, we're camping out in Nehemiah because we long for a sovereign, spirit-wrought revival. A revival that cannot be reduced to mere emotional manipulation or gimmicks or ear tickling. Why would we not desperately pray for and long for such a revival? God does do this. Listen, every single conversion is a miracle. But sometimes, sometimes throughout history, God opens the doors and just droves upon droves come to faith in Christ. Why would we not desperately hope and pray for such a thing to happen here? Why not 2019? Why not North Kansas City? Why would we not desperately pray for God, to, for God, not us, for God to transform our city through the unstoppable advancement of the gospel? And Nehemiah shows us what this kind of revival looks like, what it looks like, because there are a lot of things that go by the name of revival that aren't biblical, that aren't sovereignly spirit-wrought. And Nehemiah shows us what it looks like. So to orient ourselves around this book, let me give you some context. When reading the Scriptures, especially when reading the Old Testament books, we have to always ask this question. What time is it? What time is it? Where is this passage situated within the overarching story that God is telling through the Scriptures. Now, we ask this question because we as Christians don't believe that history is a pointless, random sequence of unrelated events. We don't believe that about history. We want to have a theological view of history. As Christians, rather, we believe that human history is a story. It's a story whose author is God himself. And you and I are in this story. We're characters alongside Nehemiah and Israel and Moses and everyone else in Scripture. Their story is our story. We're characters within the same story of human history. And we also believe that the most climactic event in this story of human history, the big reveal, happened 2,000 years ago with the gospel of Jesus Christ the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Everything else in history orbits around that point. Everything prior was leading to it, and everything after has been affected by it. So when asking, what time is it? What we're actually asking is, where does this story take place within the history of the gospel that God is writing? Or more simply, where does this happen in relation to Christ? That's the most important question we can ask when reading Old Testament passages. And the answer to that question for Nehemiah is this. Nehemiah takes place right at the end of the Old Testament's narrative. 
So the Old Testament, the story of the nation of Israel, the people from whom the Messiah would come, the Old Testament tells that narrative of the nation of Israel and Nehemiah is the last in a long line of leaders appointed by God over the people of Israel. So he's, he's the last in this really long line of, of, of Old Testament leaders. Now this is what you need to know about the book of Nehemiah. No page in Nehemiah contains the name Jesus in it. But every page in the book of Nehemiah longs for the name of Jesus. Okay, You won't find the name of Jesus contained anywhere in the book of Nehemiah. But we are not reading this book rightly if we don't see the name of Jesus longed for on every page of Nehemiah. And this is because when Nehemiah assumes his position on the stage of human history, the story of Israel had unfolded to look like a dark, bleak tragedy. Things are looking bleak. Just think about this. After making a great nation from the descendants of Abraham and delivering them out of slavery from Egypt and establishing them graciously in a land they did nothing to deserve, the nation of Israel continually spurned the instructions of God. Time and time again, God had warned them, if you persist in your sinfulness, I will take away your position and land and you'll be carried away into exile. And time and time again, they disobeyed. David, King David, was the first and just about last great godly king in Israel's history. If you look at the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, what you see is just terrible king after terrible king leading the people of Israel into rebellion until finally, just as God had promised, the nation of Israel is carried away into exile. They're brought into Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah steps onto, a sta- onto the stage about 150 years after Israel has been living in exile. Now, at this point, the temple in Jerusalem has been rebuilt, okay? So that Nebuchadnezzar comes, destroys the temple. They're brought into Babylonian captivity. The, the, the rulership transitions into Persian rule. And then uh, the king of Persia, Cyrus, decides that the city of Jerusalem needs to, be, um, ha- needs to have a temple in it. And the only reason we're ever given in, Ezra, in, the, in the book of Ezra is that God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to do that. So at this point in the story, Cyrus has um, made an edict that the temple would be rebuilt. That's, that happens later on in the story. So the temple's been rebuilt. And Ezra, the priest, has been personally living in Jerusalem for 12 years establishing the small remnant of Israelites and their community there. All right, so, so when Nehemiah steps onto the scene, what you have is, this is 12 years after Ezra has already been there, and he has every reason to believe that things are looking well for Jerusalem. It looks like, it looks like the tide is beginning to turn for the people of Israel. Now there's a temple there. Now there's a small remnant of Israelites there. And Ezra, the priest, has personally been there to establish the community. So he has every reason to expect that things are going well in Jerusalem. And this book begins with disappointing news. Look at verse 1. By the way, just about every single one of these names is going to be read differently by every person who stands and reads it to you. That just, just comes with the territory of, of Old Testament books. The words of Nehemiah, the son of of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are destroyed by fire. Tragedy. The news that Nehemiah receives is devastating. Things are not well in Jerusalem, like he expected. Now, I want you to mark well his response, brothers and sisters. Nehemiah instructs us. Nehemiah instructs us how we ought to respond to tragic and catastrophic news. We all have experienced tragic or catastrophic news or will someday. How do you respond 
How do you respond to betrayal or job loss or life-changing medical news or death? How do we respond? What do we do when the bottom drops? Do we hear the sound of our elbows hitting the table to make a game plan? Or do we hear the sound of our knees hitting the floor in prayer? What do we do when the bottom drops? We pray. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is unfiltered lamentation. And when he says for days, what you should read is four months. Because that's the next time we see Nehemiah in in Nehemiah chapter 2. He sits down and he laments for four months. Mark the difference between this kind of lament directed towards God and inward spiraling depression. There's a big difference. Nehemiah does not turn inward. That spirals into nowhere. Nehemiah doesn't turn inward. Instead, he brings all of his heavy sadness into the presence of God. Did you know that you can pour out your soul to God in sorrowful prayer? Now, I I stress this point because seldom, I believe, do we think about prayer like this. We think that prayer is the thing that we do when we feel compelled by joy in the Lord or when someone else is going through a hard time and they ask us for prayer or to bookend things like sermons and meals. Those are all great reasons to pray. There's There's never a bad reason to pray. But Nehemiah's prayer was occasioned by tragedy. Occasioned by tragedy. And notice, before he even begins asking God to intervene by blessing his plans, he simply laments. I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's fitting, brothers and sisters. He did this for four months. And this way of thinking is a far cry from the quick, fixed pragmatism of our day. Most of the time, prayer, if considered at all, is simply folded into a system of pragmatism. It's simply a means to an end. But sometimes prayer is the end, right? We we know we've misunderstood prayer when we say things like, I've tried praying and it doesn't work. It doesn't, prayer doesn't work. I've tried praying, but it just doesn't work. Right? We've all said this. <laughs> we've heard this and we've said this. But what are we really expecting here? What are we really expecting? Is prayer simply some kind of experiment? Like, I'll try this incantation and see if anything happens? We're not praying to an impersonal slot machine where we, we put our prayer in and then outcomes dispensed this automated response. Like the praises go up, the blessings come down. That is not prayer. Not at all. When we pray, we are bringing ourselves. We're bringing ourselves, our circumstances, our emotions, our requests, our needs. We're bringing all of these things, not as a coin into a slot machine, but into the presence of a personal, sovereign, and good God. Now, all three of those words are important. He's personal. He's not mechanical. He's sovereign, which means he's in control and is actually able to do something. And he's good, which means his response to your prayer is always right. Nehemiah understands all of this. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel and your ser- people of Israel your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you even I and my father's house have sinned we have acted very corruptly Against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But 
if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. I want you to notice three important characteristics of Nehemiah's prayer. And we should allow for him to instruct us in our prayers in this way. Nehemiah's prayer, number one, acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Number two, he recognizes the sinfulness of sin. And number three, his prayer hangs on the promises of God. We're going to go through each of those in turn. Point number one, Nehemiah's prayer acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Look how Nehemiah begins his prayer in verse five. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. This is no tribal deity that Nehemiah prays to like a God among gods whose skills happen to apply to Nehemiah's need. No. Nehemiah is praying to the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. This is a big God that Nehemiah prays to. He's sovereign over the nations. And Nehemiah, this is important because Nehemiah knows something about being in the presence of greatness by virtue of being the cupbearer's king, right? Being the cupbearer's king means that his responsibility was to taste all of the things that that the king Artaxerxes would would drink before King Artaxerxes would drink it because uh, to see if it was poison, which means that Nehemiah had proximity and access to literally the most powerful man on the planet, the most powerful man on the planet. So he knows something about being in the presence of greatness by virtue of being cupbearer to the king, but but reverence and awe is reserved for his God alone. Do you notice the way that, that Nehemiah talks about his relationship to God? He says, I'm your servant. Please, I'm your servant. Grant me success in the sight of this man. He's talking about King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man on the planet. And Nehemiah knows that he is but a man. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, Proverbs 21.1 tells us. He, that is the Lord, turns it wherever he will. Nehemiah knows this. That's why he takes his request to the highest possible court of appeal. Point number two, Nehemiah, his prayer recognizes the sinfulness of sin. I want you to notice As Nehemiah brings his lamentation into the presence of this great and awesome God, his conscience is tenderized and his awareness of his own sin is increased simply by virtue of being in the presence of this great and awesome God. This always happens. This always happens. This is why our services here begin with a call to worship and it naturally transitions into a time of confession of sin. That's the most natural thing in the world for sinful creatures to do in the presence of a holy God, is confess their sin. His conscience is tenderized, and his awareness of his sin is increased. Now, this is really important because this is a principle you can bank on. Deep and intimate prayer has never coexisted with unacknowledged sin. Did you hear me? Deep and intimate prayer has never coexisted with unacknowledged sin. That sin that you refuse to actually address, the one that you, that you want to keep in the, in the background, just dismiss it. I don't want to think about that sin. If I think about it at all, it's just lightly dismissed. If you have unacknowledged sin, you can't have deep and intimate prayer with God. It can't actually happen. If we are able to harbor and cherish sins in the presence of God, we are asleep to who he truly is and what's truly happening in prayer. 
His holiness is like a spotlight that exposes all of our sinfulness. And if we would desire to enjoy communion with Him, we will confess and forsake those sins out of hatred for them and out of love for Him and His holiness. And that hurts. That process hurts. That process of disclosing your sin hurts. Confession of sin is not easy, brothers and sisters. Exposing yourself to the heat of God's holy presence to burn your conscience until your sin is acknowledged and disclosed and dealt with truly is a painful process. But the cost of having an undisturbed conscience is far too great than you can pay. The cost of having an undisturbed conscience is relational alienation from God. You have to keep your distance from God's holiness to keep your conscience intact. And it's not worth it. We'll come back to that. So after fixating on the glory of God, his conscience is tenderized and he's compelled to confess his sins. And notice, he doesn't just confess his own individual sins. He confesses on behalf of the sins of of his people as well. His fathers and his contemporaries. Look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah sees himself, he sees himself as a representative, as a part of a sinful community even with a continuity to the past. He sees himself as part of that. They are me, he's thinking. Now we get our rationale to confess on behalf of the sins of the church as a whole and confess on behalf of the sins of the nations during our corporate confession time from passages like this. And many of us are uncomfortable with it. We're uncomfortable with the concept of confessing on behalf of the sins of a whole people that we belong to rather than just our own sins because we've been brought up in a very individualistic culture. But we who are uncomfortable with the concept of communal identification would do well to submit our individualism to the Scriptures because this pattern of confessing not only individual sins but also the sins of the whole community is well established throughout the Bible. And this is really important. As fallen creatures, it's often a prerequisite for real intercession. Nehemiah is confessing on behalf of the sins of the people as an intercessor. He's interceding for them. Which brings us to our third point. Nehemiah's prayer hangs on the promises of God. Nehemiah does not presume to come into the presence of God and request for God's deliverance thoughtlessly. He does not predicate his request on anything but the promises of God. These are bold requests. This is a bold request that Nehemiah is making. But God himself has invited such boldness by sealing his promises within the context of his own covenant faithfulness. This is why Nehemiah puts no stock on his own eloquence or his own righteousness. The reason... For Nehemiah's prayer is God's own merciful nature. Look back at verse 5 and see what kind of titles Nehemiah attributes to God. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who, this is who God is, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. That's who God is. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Now, if you're not sure about this term covenant, if you've never heard about it, it's referring to the most solemn agreement a person can enter into. If you're looking for a modern contemporary example of this, marriage at its best is a modern example of covenant. It's seldom honored as such, but that's what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to be a contemporary example of this covenant. To make covenant is to bind yourself to a sacred agreement, the breach of which deserves death. This is why traditional wedding vows 
have that line, till death do us part, that's not mere sentiment when we say that. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be mere sentiment when we say that. We are saying only death could end this relationship. So in marriage, covenant is supposed to be the unflinching, unbreaking fortress wall to protect the marriage within. It's to safeguard the intimacy and relationship inside. So covenant is like the garden fence to protect the relationship from flourishing. Now, we live in a fallen world where this this kind of covenant actually requires both people to, to, to commit to it in order for it to work. And we live in a fallen world where people don't. Sometimes a covenant has been broken because one person has decided to give up on that concept of the covenant safeguarding the intimacy within. But God is not like that. The God of the Bible is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Absolutely none of God's promises we read about in scriptures are ever given outside the context of covenant. Do you know what that means? It means that God is not temperamental or wishy-washy. He never makes promises because, you know what? He happens to be in a good mood this day. The mood struck him right, so he's going to make a promise. That's never how God makes promises. He seals all of them within covenant. They are concretized. God is trustworthy. His promises are safeguarded by his own covenant faithfulness. This means, listen, God would have to stop being God before he could break covenant. Now, the terms of the covenantal relationship that Nehemiah and his people were living in were laid out in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It was the covenant that God made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai when Moses was their leader. And that covenant had very specific conditions with blessings for covenant obedience and curses for covenant disobedience, right? So it had very specific terms and conditions. And Nehemiah recognizes that the plight that he and his countrymen were in was a direct result of God's covenant faithfulness in light of their covenant faithlessness. God was being faithful to what he had actually promised in the covenant. They had disobeyed God's law and true to God's promises, they had been disposed of their land. But this is, this is where Nehemiah's prayer is genius. Even in God's curses, there were embedded promises for future covenant blessings. And this is what Nehemiah makes use of. Deuteronomy chapter 30, after three years of laying out curses, 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 if you disobey, all of these terrible terrible things are going to happen. God embeds this promise in this long list of curses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is what Nehemiah refers to in verse 8. When he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. You see what Nehemiah is doing? He's not trying to reinvent the wheel. He latches hold of God's own promises and he banks his prayer on God's covenant faithfulness. He doesn't bank it on himself. He's not trying to muster up reasons for God to regard him. May we be like Nehemiah, brothers and sisters, and take our cues for how to pray from God's own self-revelation. This is where we should learn to pray, not just try to muster up prayers on our own. Now, we spent some time examining Nehemiah's prayer closely. I want us to turn back to that orienting question I asked at the beginning of this sermon. What time is it? What time was it for, for Nehemiah? Nehemiah banked his prayer on the gracious nature of God, right? He, he had great hope that God would deliver his people from their sin and the consequences of their sin. But in his wildest dreams... Nehemiah would never have imagined what this delivery would look like in its fullest sense. Nehemiah was longing for a manifestation of God's grace that was still a future to him. But we who have received the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
live in the substance that was a mere shadow for Nehemiah. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God we pray to is the very same one that Nehemiah prayed to, only the promises that we cling to are secured within a far better covenant. The problem, this, this was the problem that Nehemiah and his contemporaries and his people faced. The problem that they faced was that the law, the thing that they had to obey in order to receive covenant blessings, and the thing that they had to not disobey in order to not receive covenant curses, the law, that thing that they had to obey, could never make its way into their hearts. That was their primary problem. It couldn't make its way into their hearts. It stood outside of them as the boundary that their sinful hearts compelled them to transgress over and over again, resulting in covenant curses over and over again. But thanks be to God, when Christ came, He came to enact a far better covenant. A central promise in this new covenant is the promise that God Himself would put His law and Spirit within our hearts. He says this in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the covenantal relationship that Jesus purchases for us with his blood. But as it is, the author of Hebrews tells us, Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it was enacted on better promises. So we saw that the terms and conditions of that old covenant, covenantal relationship between Nehemiah, his people, and God. It was uh, blessings for covenant obedience and curses for covenant disobedience. Do you want to know what the terms and conditions of this covenant that every Christian belongs to are? What, what are the terms and conditions for our covenant? Here they are. Christ achieves all your covenant faithfulness for you, and you get it all by faith. This covenant does not depend on our compliance to God's law. It does not depend on our compliance to God's law. Rather, compliance to God's law is a blessing included in this covenant. That means obedience to God is not irrelevant. Obedience to God rather than, being a, rather than being a prerequisite for the new covenant is a product of it. It's a perk within the covenant. This covenant does not have covenant blessings embedded within covenant curses. It doesn't need them. This covenant doesn't even have a list of covenant curses. Christ himself was cursed on our behalf. It's just all blessing all the time in this covenant. Even the conviction of sin that compels us to confess our sin is itself a blessing. Rather than being the condemning sentence of an indignant judge, conviction of sin for the Christian is the firm correction of an invested father. This covenant is not mediated by sinful men who have to seek atonement for their own sin when they intercede on behalf of their people. Jesus Christ, rather, is the truer and better mediator whose intercession, unlike Moses and Nehemiah, is perfect because he's perfect. Nehemiah was not afraid to come into the presence of God in prayer because he was banking on God's own mercy. Everything hinged there. Now listen, here's the point. If Nehemiah was compelled by how merciful he knew God to be to pray, if that knowledge compelled Nehemiah to pray, how much more should we be motivated to bring ourselves to God in prayer? We have been given so much more assurance that God hears our prayer because we pray through the mediation of Jesus Christ, the righteous. That means if we are in Christ by faith, God the Father is no more likely to ignore our sins than he is to ignore Christ's. Did you know that? Now, in light of all of this, my pastoral charge will come as no surprise. To my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I charge you to take up Nehemiah's example and pray. May this be our first reflex as a church. Pray to a God who is actually personal 
sovereign and good. Pray as if your prayer is more than, than an individual therapy session where you're verbally processing. It's more than that. Pray to a God who is sovereign. Pray as if he can actually do something. Pray also to a God who is sovereignly good, whose answers to your requests are never at odds with your best interest. Did you know that when you come to this God in prayer, you can know that you will never have to catch him on a good day? Every day is a day that he's ready to dish out good for you. I'm going to say something very drastic, but I believe it to be true. Every answer to every prayer a Christian has ever prayed has been a kind answer from a loving father who is for that Christian's good. Every answer to every prayer, every prayer, even when he says no to your hopes and yes to your fears. That sentence did not leave my mouth lightly. We've experienced together, haven't we, the sting of God's no to our hopes. We've been praying, God, please let this be so. And he says no. Or his yes to our fears, God, please may it not be so. And he says yes. That's a heavy thing. Now such a sentence can only be stomached by those who know God to be personal and sovereign and good. Second, pray and confession of sin. Often we believe that sin itself is a reason not to pray, right? As if God won't receive your prayer of confession until you've sufficiently spent enough time alienating yourself from his presence. So you give yourself a time out. I won't pray to God until after I've felt sufficiently terrible about myself. What a wretched lie. There has never been a good reason not to pray. Even, listen, even the lack of desire to pray and confess sin is itself a reason to pray and confess that sin. Did you know that, dear God, I don't want to pray, please warm my cold heart, is a prayer? You can pray that prayer. That's a prayer that God delights to answer. So pray to God in confession with the full assurance that he's not standing with his finger toward the door telling you to turn around and march right back into your room until you've thought about what you've done. That is not his posture. He is always ready to receive your confession. Now, let me just pause for a moment to undermine some of the fleshly, deceptive, lawyer-like consciences that have probably already begun to make their case. When I say, come to God in confession of sin, I do not mean come to God in confession of sin instead of other Christians in confession of sin. Sometimes a true prayer of confession only begins in isolation before the Lord. Sometimes that sin has not truly been confessed to the Lord until it's been confessed to other Christians as well. And you say, Pastor Sam, how do I know when that's the case? My answer is, if you're really, really hoping it's not the case, it probably is. <laughs> when in doubt, I would always err on the side of confession to other Christians. Now, in this case, I don't take lightly the fact that I'm asking you to walk by faith and not by sight, because you do stand to lose a lot in confession, sometimes. Sometimes a lot really is at stake. Sometimes it really does mean deaths, little deaths. And I'm asking you to walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith that there is greater joy to be found on the other side of confession, no matter what it costs, even if it means losing reputation, relationship, or job. Nothing is more valuable than unencumbered honesty before the Lord. We, we want to vomit it out of our system. We want to have so, li so little regard for how we're perceived by others that we're willing to just vomit it out of our system with no regard for how disgusting it looks coming out or how undignified we look doubled over the trash can. We don't even care because we so want this stuff out of our system and we so want for communion with God once again. 
So pray in confession. Now, for those of you who are not believers in Christ Jesus, I charge you to pray as well. But there's only one prayer you have any business of praying this morning if you're not a believer in Christ Jesus. If you're not a believer, there's only one prayer you have any business of praying. And it sounds something like this. It doesn't have to be this verbatim. There's nothing magical about these. But if you're looking for words for your prayer, it can go something like this. Lord Jesus Christ, receive me as one of your own. I believe that you are the Lord God of heaven come in the flesh, buried, resurrected, ascended, and seated at the right hand of your Father. Help my unbelief. I am done trying to manage my life on my own with trying to manipulate you with payment for religious goods and services. And I am done with trying to minimize the severity of my sin. I deserve death and hell. So please, Lord Jesus, atone for my sins and grant me your righteousness. May your life count for mine, your death count for mine, and may your resurrection secure my own. That prayer or a prayer like it is the only business you have praying if you're not a Christian this morning. Until God saves you by grace through faith, he is not your father. He's your judge. So I urge you to come to Christ today. Do so even now in prayer while the Christians participate in this sacred meal of communion. This meal isn't for you. If you're not a Christian, it's not for you to, to, uh, to eat. It's for you to observe, okay? So watch the Christians proclaim to you where our hopes reside. And if you are a Christian, I invite you to enjoy this meal of worship. This is an act of worship that we get to do as Christians together. This act of fellowship with Christ and his body. Come and enjoy the covenant that Christ purchased with his blood. That's a good, that's a good exercise, by the way. As you're taking communion, thank him for the covenant that he secured with his blood. And look around you at this people that he's purchased with his blood. So come and enjoy this covenant. Come and enjoy the blood-bought gift of prayer. I'm going to pray and then ask for the believers here to come down to my left. You'll take from the bread and the cup and return to your seat to my right. Join me in prayer. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, we thank you for this meal. Thank you for the covenant that you, Lord Jesus, purchased with your blood. As we digest this bread and this juice, we ask that, your, that you work into us an awareness of the better word, the better promises, the better covenant that this meal signifies. Because of Christ, our prayers are safeguarded and sealed with your spirit. Because of Christ, we are not strangers eating an ordinary meal, but we are partakers of covenant love. We pray that you would use this visible proclamation of your gospel to strengthen the church and convince the lost of their need for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. Come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.